Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. All right. So now Say hi, Zoe. Zoe's not happy because I'm keeping up from all of those. <laughs> Zoe's so, in a feisty mood. Now we have our friends in the, uh, the, the Facebook world. And, and the Vibe world. Vibe Radio Network world with us. And, yeah, good evening, everybody. So it's a dark and stormy night. Total cliche. Light show outside. <laughs> Total cliche tonight. Might still have a few flashes in the background. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But hope you all are doing all right. It's been a busy week. It's a couple of weeks. weeks. Maybe how quickly it's flown by. What We're not going to go. Was it Canada last time? We think Canada last time, yes, because Canada just opened its borders. That's right. So. Which brings us to tonight. On a Broadway. So Broadway is opening up in September. Yay! <laughs> and hello, Patrick. Good evening. Hello, hello. So, yes, Broadway is something that is near and dear to my heart because I am a theater major. I'm a um, trained theater technician, stage designer, sound, uh, lighting, all of that, costumes. I did it for many years at my high school um, that I taught at. And as you can see from my um, posters from our productions up in the background. Uh, and, yes, our, our theater was haunted. <laughs> um, but it's something that I remember, you know, very young age, my, one of my birthday gifts was to take a couple friends to uh, New York and to take them to go see Cats on Broadway. That was my first Broadway show, actually, in, in New York on Broadway. I've been going to theater for years prior to that, but that was my treat, and I was very um, enthralled by it, you could say, and that's probably what led me to set design is I just the world that was created within the, that musical. So I decided, well, we're going to kind of take a trip back down my memory lane and uh, talk about the theaters that are on Broadway that are haunted. Now, not all of them are, just so you know. <laughs> Quite a few of them. Though. Quite a few of them are. They, they have, you know, some of them have definitely very much in-depth, um, very detailed stories, very, uh, very you know, good theories about exactly who, who it might is. be and stuff like that. And other ones we're going to share tonight are just kind of like little vignettes, um, things about, you know, things going bump in the night type things at some of the theaters. But, um, yeah, there are several dozen theaters that make up what is known as, you know, official Broadway. official Broadway in New York City. We didn't even go off Broadway. We yeah. just stuck to Broadway. And they're yeah. all, all kind of crammed into the same area, probably, I don't know, within about a mile radius of yeah. one another. And um, beautiful theaters going back, you know, for something for well over a century. A few are, uh, a few are a little newer. Yeah. But they've had so much energy that's gone through them over the years. Yeah. And uh, it's... Uh, it's just amazing to think about the various, you know, shows, the people that have been drawn there, and everything that's transpired on Broadway over the years. Now, you can imagine there's a lot of superstitions in theater, uh, and one of them is you always have a ghost like on the stage uh, when you do not have a production in residence, and it's just a single bowl that's lit on stage, and it's meant to keep the ghost happy. That's the time it works. <laughs> um, but that is one of the superstitions. Uh, so, of course, you know, they have their own beliefs and their own beliefs. And we're going to talk about quite a few of them. But let's think about, of course, why theaters might be some of the most haunted places in all the world. As Chris said, it's the energy. You have the electricity, the lights, and the sound, and the special effects. Then you have the physical and emotional energy of the actors that then draw that same energy out of their audience members. And you put all of that around, and guess what? Spirits like to manifest. Uh, but they also like to be entertained as well. It's not just 
prior actors and actresses and technicians and producers that haunt these, there's also audience members who always love to go to the theater and they've gone back to the theaters that they love and they're still watching brand new shows today. Um, so for a little bit of a fun little antidote here, of course, I'm not Helen Mirren. I would love to be the woman. She is my idol. Um, and, of course, Chris is not Patrick Stewart. She no, was Patrick a, Stewart, Matthew Jackman. You know, some of the most famous men who have ever been on the theater and the women who have ever treaded the boards. I mean, uh, give me a, a Dina Menzel any day. Um, we are not those people. But Playbill, who reports on all of the shows and all the actors and actresses and the uh, production teams that are on Broadway, actually has started yearly reporting on the ghostly activity in their uh, uh, publicized yearbook every single year. Uh, so it was kind of fun to find these stories uh, that had been published over many, many, many years. Uh, now, of course, you might want to figure out why certain stories are pinpointed to one type of ghost or one type of haunting, but we'll save those discussions for another day. <laughs> that, that is a whole <laughs> In another Paranormal 101 in theaters. We'll get to sneak in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's go ahead and talk about the different types of hauntings that uh, happen in these theaters. So we have, of course, um, the unaccountable noises. You have the mysterious opening and closing of doors and cabinets, flickering of lights. Sometimes there's a cold spot in the room, the colored mist, a floating orb in a photograph, an inanimate object that is moving around without anybody touching it. The disembodied voices. Disembodied dancing, which I always found really fun. Uh, and sometimes you might see the wispy manifestation or contorted face in the mirror or the window. Uh, even a full body apparition or two that come up as well. Sometimes you get touched. Just the way it is. I get that a lot. <laughs> now, the new Amsterdam Theater actually has had all of those things happen inside that theater. Uh, now, the culprit is believed to be well-known to them all, and uh, before we get to who that culprit is, let's go ahead and go back to the history of the building here. Uh, it was actually uh, standing at 214 West uh, 42nd Street, and it was built between 1902 and 1903. It was the largest operation of its kind in New York City when it opened, with 1,702 seats. Never understood that, Whatever. Uh, it was the first, the first show that was actually performed there was uh, Shakespeare's The Midsummer Night's Dream. You always start with a classic. And it later became home to Vicksville's Follies. So everybody knew about Vicksville's Follies and the traveling shows. Uh, and they were there between 1913 and 1927. Live productions continued until 1937. At this point in time, however, the theater was actually converted to do movies. It continued that way until 1985 when it closed down and the space was then leased to the Walt Disney Company and they still operate the theater today. Now, from the Zigfield Follies era is when the most acid spirit at the theater actually originates. She was known by the name Olive Thomas. She was once a Follies of the Horse Girl and while she might not be taking part in the live productions today, she manifests herself frequently enough that Dana Amendel, the Vice President of the Operations for Disease Theatrical Production, has placed photographs at all the doors so that the staff can come in and say hello to all of every single day and hopefully that calms her down a bit. 
kind of puts a little bit of a damper on some of the mischief that she's known for. Yeah. But it doesn't always work. Definitely. <laughs> Olive likes to have it away. Now, Olive's story comes uh, to become one of fame and luxury. She came to Manhattan at the age of 16. She quickly won the title of Most Beautiful Girl in New York City and then became a member of the Victor Hollies. Uh, she was a chorus girl in 1915 at the uh, New Amsterdam main stage and also in the subsequent Midnight Frolic, which was the more intimate New Amsterdam group theater in the same building. Olive was whisked out of uh, New York and off to Hollywood where she made a handful of silent films and then married Jack Pickford, the ne'er-do-well brother of the period superstore Mary Pickford. You might remember the name. We did uh, actually mention her and her haunting and when we did Hunt Now, on a trip to Paris in 1920, Jack revealed he had contracted syphilis and that she probably had it, too. What happened next is up for debate. Official reports said that Olive accidentally swallowed an overdose of Jack's medicine, mercury bichloride, which if you take in large quantities, is poisonous. Uh, but Jack quickly rushed her to the hospital, and Olive died, unfortunately, two days later. It is at this time that people started to wonder how it could have been accidentally emptied an entire bottle of his medicine. Uh, now, Jack and Alt's relationship could be very loving at times, and it could be very tumultuous at times. Uh, Jack was actually known to stray, and this is how he contracted syphilis. Uh, however, Jack brought Alt's body back to New York. She was buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, and it was shortly after that the people started noticing that Olive was back at the theater. <laughs> she had to go somewhere. Um, yeah, she had to go somewhere. And, I mean, that's where she was made big. So uh, she was actually seen, seen backstage by friends, people she had worked with, and they're like, that can't be. She's dead. She's buried. Why is Olive in the theater? Uh, so she actually appeared periodically throughout the 1920s. She became <clears throat> quiet. During the time that, um, you know, the 42nd Street theaters went into decline or were underused. And it, things started picking back up again when Disney came to play because Disney decided to renovate. And, of course, renovation brings out a whole bunch of stuff. So while the renovation was going on, some of the earliest stories uh, centered around a beautiful woman in a green 1920s flapper-style dress was uh, seen walking around the theater, and then she would abruptly vanish. One of the most notable incidents happened with a night watchman who was doing his rounds, and he felt a tap on the shoulder. He turned around to come face-to-face with a woman in the slapper dress. He was too stunned to move, and he could only watch as the woman moved away from him and then exited through an exterior wall on 41st Street. It was enough for him to actually call Dana and wake him up and report what happened. Dana started a log book. Yeah, to call the corporate vice president in the middle of the night and wake them up. Because you saw a woman in a 1920s flapper suit go through a wall? That's not usually the type of thing to be frank. No. No. <laughs> so Dana did not quite become a full believer, but he's definitely less of a skeptic. And as I said, he started a logbook of her appearances and her mischievous things that she has done. Uh, he basically claimed he's become the keeper of the Olive Thomas legacy at the theater. Uh, other things that he has clocked in for her appearances, uh, in 2000s, mid-2000s, he was actually going over the um, old New Amsterdam Roof Theater. It was being converted into office space at that point in time, 
And as he was touring what had occurred in the construction thus far, he distinctly heard the sound of tap dancing on the boards above him where the old stage would have been. He climbed up to that stage level and he found that he was the only one in the stage. There was no other way for somebody to come up or down. That was the only viable stairwell to go up. Other things that happened in 2013, a creative development team was in one of the offices talking about the film The Artist, which is set in the silent film era. And they were wondering out loud how many Bigfield Folly Girls actually were in the silent movie. Of course, they mentioned all of Thomas, but then somebody's Mary Pickford was the real silent era star. No, no. Poking your prodding just a little bit. Yeah, no. <laughs> then uh, they believe all of got upset, understandably. Uh, and uh, then they said, I wonder what all of Thomas would think of the artist. At that point in time, a stack of DVDs that had been basically in this one place on the table for quite some time went flying across the room. Pretty sure that was all saying, I don't care for your thoughts. Uh, and they were all stunned into silence. No need to be so rude. Yes. Take back what you said. They were sister-in-laws after all. Now, Olive has also made uh, her presence known during the previews of Aladdin. There was a female replacement conductor that came in. She had worked in the same theater on Mary Poppins, and she was familiar with the story of Olive and Olive's presence. Now, she was getting ready in her dressing room, and she was a bit nervous. I mean, she was stepping into this role. And she read an email from the conductor that she had been replacing. She just basically reintroduced herself to all of them. She's letting her, hey, you might remember me. I was here before. I'm just saying hi and then I'm back. And I really wish you would, you know, grant me some luck tonight. I'm a little nervous. Well, at that point in time, she thought to herself, just a side thought, I wonder what the Folly Girls would have thought about having a female conductor. She then says, as soon as that thought finished, Four of the light bulbs on her dressing room table kind of went on and off several times, like they were winking at her. And she took this as a wink from Olive and that Olive approved of a female conductor. I think that's kind of cool. Now, um, Dana also says that, you know, if there are such things as ghosts, then the New Amsterdam Theater is definitely haunted. He's happy about it. They embrace it. She, uh, they say that Olive is never violent. She's a bit mischievous. She embodies, however, what they are all about and what Disney is about, and that is in the business of happiness and to make um, somebody happy and especially to have somebody who was in the business for so long ago, they're kind of just letting them know, we've got a cat, (laughs) Um, that they are still doing what she thinks is okay in the theater, and she's quite happy or he's quite happy with her. Uh, Now, he does say that Olive is not predictable. She will not perform on cue. Uh, So you can never assume you're going to see her when you come into the theater. Uh, But she does tend to appear right at the moment that you start to forget about her or things are changing up for the next show. Simply put, you don't find Olive. She finds you. (laughs) He's never acting now. He was liking the shadows that are happening on the wall over here. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes. Zoe is very much interested in telling stories. Zoe is interested in just about everything. Zoe is a good space. Zoe is a, yeah, she's a little, she's a little firecracker. 
<laughs> so from here, we are going to go uh, move a few blocks to the east until we get to 111 West 44th Street. And it's here that you'll find the Belasco Theater. Built in 1907 by Dave Belasco, the Belasco Theater effectively served as David's home for many years. He spent nearly every waking moment there. He was more than a theater owner, he was also a writer and director and was involved with almost every aspect of the theater's operations. David was able to build his dream theater after decades of success as an author, including one of his works, which was adapted into the well-known Madame Butterfly. In 1907, the Velasco Theater cost about $750,000 to build. Just to kind of put that in perspective, that would cost well over $20 million today. The theater features Tiffany glass decor and murals by artist Everett Shin and was known for its modern productions and lavish architecture, which extended from the ground floor to the penthouse duplex occupied by Mr. Velasco himself. David Velasco's success afforded him the ability to live in extreme lavishness. There was more than enough space at his Velasco penthouse to install salons, bedrooms, dining areas, and a studio. But the living room was the apartment's focal point. Designed like a Gothic church, this was where Velasco showcased his impressive collection of art and theater memorabilia, much of it being of the erotic variety. Behind all the success was an eccentric man whose inner flamboyance could be seen through the objects he owned. One might consider Velasco's penthouse bizarrely decorated, cluttered, and confusing, but it reflected well on the man who called it home, or perhaps we should say, still called it home. As Velasco's spirit is still hanging out in one of his most famous, famous favorite places. <laughs> to understand why the spirit of David Velasco is so influential and haunted lore in New York City, one must know how important his theater was to Broadway as a whole. The Velasco Theater was a modern marvel in the theater world. Despite being Jewish and a great lover of women, he was nicknamed the Bishop of Broadway because of his unexplained daily priestly clothing of black suits and a clerical collar. This flamboyancy crossed over into his theater design and productions. In 1913, our theaters today and yesterday described the theater as the first theater to be built in an enclosed rectangular court. It is broad and shallow and seats about 1,100 people and allows each a clear view of the stage at such close range that opera glasses are superb. Yes, superb. So, yeah, basically take your typical imagination, what you're thinking about as a theater. You have the stage and then you have rows and balconies going further and further back until you get eventually to what is considered the nosebleed. That is not what the Velasco Theater is like. Back every, off. Yeah, every, and uh, really very much the stage is in the middle of things, kind of enclosing, uh, enclosed by the, uh, the seating, so everybody has a really good view. Now, the decorations in the Velasco Theater reflect Velasco's desire for theatrical intimacy. No chandeliers or brackets are visible. Instead, lights are discreetly enclosed on the roof. Another notable feature of the Playhouse's restrained design is its absence of an orchestra. As for the curtain, it rises in a very interesting manner, which is announced by the sound of a muffled gong. Throughout his life, Velasco was fascinated with lights and machines. He was thus also known for introducing many innovations in theater technology. 
The Belasco Theater had one of Broadway's first modern light boards. With 55 dimmer dials, it empowered crew to easily set the mood of performances, which makes people like us very, very happy. Such things a little over my head. I mean, 65 dials and stuff like that sounds very impressive. Oh, that's small compared to today. Well, (laughs) either way, she knows what it's all about. A strong proponent of realism in the theater, Velasco had reproduced detailed operational apartments, a child's restaurant, and a laundromat on stage. Although short-lived but still influential, he also used scent design to really bring the audience into the setting. Smells were sent through the Velasco Theater's vents, for instance. Sometimes actual food was cooked or coffee was brewed on stage. In 2010, the Velasco Theater's current owners brought out its Tiffany lights and restored it to its former grandeur. Paint was removed from the various murals, and the stained glass outside the building was cleaned and restored. Surely this made Velasco's spirit very happy, to say the least. After several mid-century flops, the Velasco Theater has been renewed into what it once was, a beautiful playhouse with respected performances across all genres. Multiple Tony Awards have been won for the Playhouse's performances, and many famous celebrities got their start there. During his life, Velasco was a friendly character, maybe a little bit of a trickster, but always encouraging to those who entered his theater. He hasn't changed at all in his spirited years. Velasco's ghost is never intentionally frightening or threatening. Rather, he seems to be lending his support to the modern cast and crew of his theater, maybe with the occasional prank thrown in for fun. Since his death at the age of 77 in 1931, David Velasco has been seen in the theater's private box during rehearsals and opening night. He's usually alone, but sometimes the ghost of a woman in blue is with him. This woman is said to be the spirit of a beautiful actress who died after falling down an elevator shaft that would take Velasco and his friends up to his penthouse. Others believe that she is the ghost of a red-headed stripper who worked in the building when it served as a gentleman's club called the Follies in the mid-1900s. She is said to have committed suicide by hanging herself in the Velasco Theater's basement. No matter her origins, there have been numerous sightings of the Blue Lady at the Playhouse. Speaking of female companions, (laughs) Velasco was a bit of a ladies' man himself. As a ghost, he still pinches the bottoms of young actresses performing at the Playhouse. One story tells of a young actress who was taking a shower in her dressing room when her bathroom door was suddenly flung open. When she jumped out to yell at whoever it was, nothing was there except for a creepy blue glow. Was it David hoping to sneak a peek at her or maybe the blue lady sizing up her competition? Velasco's ghost especially especially likes to appear after shows. It's been reported that after an exceptionally good performance, his solid figure would appear backstage to chat with and shake the hands of actors. But if the night didn't go too well, Velasco would express his discontent by ransacking dressing rooms. Furniture, vases, and belongings have been discovered thrown against their walls and doors after bad performances. In recent years, the Velasco Theater suffered a series of flops. So if the stories are true, the Playhouse's cleaning crew was likely very busy in the wee hours after the curtains closed. Velasco's ghost expresses his presence in other ways in the theater as well. Mysterious noises and out-of-place smells are common in the historic landmark. The non-functioning elevators are often heard going up to the now-abandoned penthouse, for instance. Multiple voices and disembodied footsteps are also heard in there 
excuse me, people have heard the sound of raucous parties being held in the Blasco apartment, complete with the sound of feet dancing to 1920s era music. Workers reporting to the disturbance find nothing but thick layers of dust undisturbed now for many years. Downstairs in the theater, cigar smoke has been smelled backstage when no one is lighting up, at least no one among the living. Melissa Errico, who played Mina in Dracula the Musical, reported that Velasco does indeed haunt the theater. She recalled the time that her dresser, Kathy, saw him walk into a mirror. She thinks that he lives in the mirror in the wall outside my dressing room. Well, <laughs> one night I forgot my coat and I had turned out the lights in my room. I turned back to get my coat in the dark and someone turned the small, pretty table light on for me to see my way. It was spooky. As I opened the door to leave, as I was walking out, someone closed the door behind me. I didn't touch it, but watched it move. Seems that David most certainly does take the welfare of those who work at the theater seriously. In 2008, during the run of Passing Strange, actor Daniel Breaker told Play, uh, Playbill Radio that one evening he was putting on his makeup in his dressing room mirror when he saw an old man with white hair sitting behind him, silently watching him. When Breaker turned around to demand, you know, what was he doing there, the man, who resembled nobody working on the show, was gone. Breaker reported the incident to the house manager and was told without a trace of surprise, you just saw David Velasco. <laughs> Currently, Velasco house manager Stephanie Wallace said that Velasco has been comparatively quiet in the years since the theater was renovated in 2010. To tease him out, the creators of the theater's hit, Hedwig and the Angry Itch, actually wrote Velasco into the script. Each night, Neil Patrick Harris, yes, that Neil Patrick Harris, and his successors asked if anyone in box B has seen the ghost, but so far, Wallace reports that there have been no takers. Again, very thin of the average. <laughs> Man has a uh, flair for the dramatic, yeah. which you would expect at Broadway. I have to wonder, a certain British producer slash writer might have gone and visited and based him in the opera, especially after this guy. Mm. I mean, I know it's based off of the novel, but, but there are some very similar. When was Phantom of the Opera written? Oh, back in the 1800s. Oh, yeah, so, okay. Maybe the the theatrical adaptation? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that's why I said a certain Broadway producer. You think the LA? Of course. That producer? Oh. I didn't need it once. <laughs> anyway. Is he watching tonight? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, saying hi to the kitties. Kitties have to terrorize, after all, it's in their nature. Uh, yeah, Zoe started doing 3 a.m. Zooming the problem with that. Really, yeah, like having furry, furry ghosts in your house. Very much so. And hello, Whitney. Glad you could join us this evening. Sounds like great afterlife. You get to be a ghost in your theater, being a trickster and someone who encourages the actors alive today. Yeah. I like your mom's comment. You get to see the shows for free. <laughs> yeah. That, quite the value there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so let's go on to the uh, Richard Rogers Theater. Uh, now, this is just a couple of blocks to the north and west. You will find Richard Rogers Theater at 226 West 46th Street. It is currently home to the Smash It. 
<laughs> We're having a delightful conversation about, well, cats, of course, of course. and also um, how, um, you know, David Velasco, you know, there's worse ways to spend your afterlife as far as, you oh, know, basically the guy gets to, you know, the passion in life, passion and, death. passion and death, and basically what our various passions in the afterlife will be. We will be ghosts who share ghost stories. I'm not sure how much of a market for that there will actually be. Guess we'll find out. I'll be out. driving the tour bus around. Guess we'll find out when we get there. But yeah. other pe- other people will be uh, having their, you know sharing their passions in other ways. So lots of good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have Glenn. That's cool, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. Just in time for the Eugene O'Neill theater. Oh, up here. Okay, my turn. <laughs> and oh, Whitney is going to start singing show tunes now. Hugh Hampton. That never happens in this house. All the time. All the time. And Patrick says there will always be a demand for ghost stories. So, guess that works. Yeah. Have a livelihood afterwards. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah. Here's <clears> the <throat> Excuse me. Can I give you the chocolate while I was talking? Oh, me too. Coat the throat. Coat the throat. What is it? Uh, I didn't warm up. I didn't warm up the throat. <laughs> I, I did not take Broadway lessons. I don't know, whatever, number, whatever that would be. Two. Two. What's number one? Don't mess with the goats. Ah, okay. That's a good, good lesson. Anyways, moving a couple blocks to the north, we'll find the Eugene O'Neill Theater at 230 West 49th Street. Built in 1925, the theater opened as the Forest Theater and was renamed the Cornette Theater in 1945. It finally settled on its current name in 1959 as it was rechristened in honor of playwright Eugene O'Neill, who passed away six years prior. The Eugene O'Neill Theater has been home to a number of well-known productions over the years, including Annie, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Grace, Death of the Salesman, the whole Monty, Sweeney Todd, and the currently running The Book of Mormon. Hello. <laughs> Hello. My name is <laughs> Moving on. That's going to get us flagged. <laughs> During the production of Sweeney Todd in 2006, a series of paranormal events loomed over the cast and crew of the production, and it could sometimes be quite unsettling. For example, during the show's previews, things would sometimes randomly fall off the shelves, including dangerous objects like a fairly large pair of gardening shears. The actors would sometimes report having their hair randomly tugged as well, or even having their characters' names whispered in their ears while on stage. Amongst the other activity, there is sometimes the unexplained scent of lilacs downstage to the left. In another incident, an actress had, uh, had part of her costume go missing. Now, this is not as racy as it sounds. It's quite a little simple piece. It was, okay. yeah. it was a whistle that was kept in the pocket of a bloody lab coat, which never should have been left on stage. It wasn't until several weeks later, after the whistle had been given up for lost, that it abruptly tumbled out of a sack of clothing in the basement. These clothes were on one of the dead racks where unused clothing is stored. So just kind of give you an idea, you know, when you go from one production to the next to the next, it's not like all the um, 
all the stage equipment and all the costumes, they don't all just go away. They have to go somewhere, and that is the dead racks where they were stored in the basement, where there was no reason for the whistle to wind up there. <clears throat> but anyways, whatever is lingering in the Eugene O'Neill Theater walks a very fine line between mischief and maliciousness. With having hosted such a wide variety of shows over the decades and having so many cast, crew, and audiences come and gone, it can be hard to pinpoint the source of such activity. Maybe something is tied to a sentimental object that resides in the theater. Or perhaps it is somewhat a prudish spirit that is put off by the sometimes racy and irreverent production that has taken place under the theater's roof. Or maybe it's someone who's just a little bitter about being dead. Maybe. Regardless of where it's coming from, it's strongly advised that you use a little extra caution when you ever you find yourself in a production under the roof of the Eugene O'Neill Theater. So, gonna go ahead and slide on to our next stop. Okay. And this next stop, everything's really close. As we mentioned earlier, everything's like in a mile radius. And so, just a very brief jaunt back to the south. You'll find the Stephen Sondheim Theater at one <laughs> at 124 West 43rd Street. It's located at the site of the former Henry Miller's Theater, and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that this location has had one of the most tumultuous histories of any theater location in all of New York City. Henry Miller's Theater was built back in 1918 by actor, director, producer well, Henry Miller. Shocker, named place after himself. Miller was only able to operate the theater himself for a few years before he passed away in 1926. The theater was subsequently purchased, or excuse me, subsequently managed by his son Gilbert, and it proceeded to host a variety of successful productions through the late 1960s. However, the live productions were not the last. The theater was converted into a movie house called Park Miller, showing feature films for a short time until it was renamed Avon on the Hudson and began running X-rated features. The building's run as a movie house lasted about a decade until it was converted again, this time into a discotheque called Xenon in 1978. Maybe you've heard the name, maybe you haven't, but it was a very, very close competitor of the famous uh, Studio 54. Got that right, right? Yes. Studio 54, yes, okay. So anyways, it continued to serve as a club for a little over two, two decades with the name and style changing multiple times to fit the theme of the moment. Finally, in 2001, the building returned to its original purpose of live theater and was rechristened the Henry Miller once again. But even this was to be short-lived. In 2004, the theater closed again, and this time the interior was gutted for the development of the 57-story Bank of America Tower. While the original facade remains, the theater was moved underground to accommodate the banking facilities above. The new Henry Miller's Theater opened in 2009, but only for a few months, whereas in March of 2010, it was renamed to honor the distinguished composer, Stephen Sondheim, for his 80th birthday. Today, the Stephen Sondheim Theater is one of only two Broadway theaters to reside underground. I actually kind of want to go see the theater just because it's underground. <laughs> well, you have a whole thing with the uh, underground and stuff I like do. that back at uh, back at St. Lawrence. I do. Yeah. Soft spot. Mm -hmm. Now, what would Henry Miller have to say about the fate of his theater through the years? 
Having been deceased for 95 years, it would be difficult to ask him directly, but we can assume that there would have been at least a few decades where he would have been less than thrilled about its use as a movie house and nightclub. And while his name and theatrical shows returned in the early 2000s, the subsequent gutting of the building would likely have been gut-wrenching as well. As far as his opinion on the Stephen Sondheim name, Miller might not bear Sondheim any real will, but that's not to say that he's keen on being forgotten anytime soon. In the spring of 2014, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, had recently premiered. One of the cast members, Kevin Duda, had stayed late one night and was getting ready to exit the stage door when he realized that he had forgotten something in his dressing room. Turning back, he caught a glimpse of the old Henry Miller sign that had been relegated to a space overhanging the security desk by the stage door. As he made his way back to the elevator to return to his dressing room, random thoughts started to swirl in Duda's head. As he entered the elevator, he was pondering the theater's history, and he asked himself aloud what Henry Miller would have thought about his name being limited to the back corner of the theater by the stage door. Henry's answer came in the form of a jolt. The elevator, which was relatively new, bounced hard and came to an abrupt stop. Duda was stuck. He screamed inside stuck elevator for the next five minutes until security found him and helped him out. Duda, not one to believe in coincidences, made sure to never question Henry Miller's emotions or state of mind again after that moment. While Henry Miller's contributions to Broadway history may never be outright forgotten, he doesn't seem to be all too keen on not being considered a headlining figure in the modern day. I'll check on that. You take the next story. Doesn't belong there. Yuna, you don't belong up there. <laughs> he was walking around the again. AKA the fireplace mantle. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go on to Gershwin now. So the Gershwin Theater is back up to the north. It's at 222nd West 51st Street. Uh, and this is home to one of New York's newer theaters. Having only opened 50 years ago in 1971, the theater seems to have collected a few spirits in its relatively brief history. The building uh, is a 48-story business high-rise, which was constructed by the Eurus Building Corporation and originally named the Eurus Building. The theater incorporated in it was therefore called the Eurus Theater as well. The skyscraper was sold and renamed for its new owners the Paramount and Vincent Group. In 1983, the theater was re-christened. Christened. I didn't do my one last either. You need more to drink. Apparently. Uh, In honor of the Gershwin brothers, George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin, Ira, who was outlived by his brother by about 40 years, passed away shortly before the re-christening of that same year. Over its history, the theater plays host to many classic shows, including Fergie and Beth, The King and I, The Pirates of Pandemic, Singing in the Rain, and many other well-known shows. Since 2003, the theater has been home to its longest-running show, the hit musical, Wicked. The spirits that linger about the Gershwin Theater are subtle. Their exact identities are uncertain, but they seem to be content just to hang around and waiting for the curtain to rise. 
One of the spirits seems to be a man from the theater's earliest days, dressed in a smart blue suit that would have been right at home in the 1970s or 80s. He has regularly been seen in the building for many years, only to disappear on approach. Another one of the ghosts is a man dressed in a simple white T-shirt. It stands to reason that this might be one of the earliest stagehands from the day's past. It's not a typical attire for an audience member, and the final spirit is only one that has actually been named. And it depends on who you ask. They might call him Drew, or they might call him Dennis. The spirits are not content to only be seen, as one or more of the cast or crew members have received a deceit, the polite tap on the shoulder, only to turn around and find that they're alone. We're having all kinds of uh, Broadway theater quotes. I will right not start <laughs> singing my even though I know it by heart, but I can't go that high. I don't have any of I don't have any bell range. Or bell range. Today. don't have any range. At least you have a range. I could try it, but it wouldn't be pretty. And I'm a little forced right now. It's a big tour. It was a good tour. It was very good tour, but it was big. Yep. All right. So the Imperial Theater. Heading south, you'll find the Imperial Theater at 249 West 45th Street, and it opened on Christmas Day at 1923. It became the 50th venue in New York City to be owned by the previously discussed Schubert organization. And nearly a century later, they still own it today. Designed up to be a musical theater, it has hosted many notable shows over the years, and many notable performers have graced its stage, including the very talented Ethel Merman. Yeah, that one's a legend. <laughs> in life, Ethel was possessed of a legendary personality and powerful commanding stage presence. You couldn't take her eyes off her. With her unique, arresting voice, she captured the attention of film and stage, including her appearances in Broadway's Imperial Theater. She was known by many as the first lady of musical comedy. She became renowned for her leading roles in Anything Goes, Annie Get Your Gun, Gypsy, and Hello Dolly. After a full and rewarding career, Ethel passed away in 1984 at the age of 76 at her home in Manhattan. That evening, all the theaters in Broadway dimmed their lights in her honor. It seemed that she was not down with Broadway, though, as she has chosen the Imperial Theater as her place to reside in the years that followed. Over the years, people who have witnessed the odd going-ons at the Imperial believe that it's Merman, who is still navigating the theater, opening and closing doors as she moves about the space that she was so familiar with in life. Perhaps it's her comfort within the space that has drawn her back there. Or maybe she just enjoys messing with people. She was always a bit of a mischievous person. Uh, she often, of course, played tricks when she was alive, and she had a reputation for being brash and yanking on people's chains. And it's very likely she would make the most out of any paranormal ability she's been gifted with in the afterlife. So if you ever find yourself at the Imperial Theater, make sure you give Ethel a warm hello as she's likely still lingering in that space. There's so much that they could not include in the script about Ethel mm-hmm. because she truly was a very... And I mean this in a complimentary manner, vulgar individual. She's very body woman. She, she embraced her body. She, she fantastic. absolute delight. She was not afraid to say or do anything. I love the woman for it. I want to get her on the girl. Uh, and Patrick, oh, yep, it's the ambulance. It's time to hide the bodies. 
<laughs> Not much room to bury them in the backyard. <laughs> and Whitney absolutely loves Ethel. <laughs> she stands with Ethel, Ethel Merman, and then there's a singing quote, which I dare not try to repeat. And, uh, yeah, loving that story. <laughs> but moving on to our next stop. Yes, as I said, many, many haunted locations amongst Broadway. Not every last one of them, but just about. I need to turn to Broadway. Yeah, seriously. So. <clears throat> yeah. If you're forgetting to do your chocolate, I'll take yours. Okay. For the next time. Uh-oh. They're back. I really hope it's not a water rescue. Mm-hmm. I can't check the active. No. Yes. Okay. <laughs> anyway, about a five. The cats are being rambunctious. No, nah, they're fine. Okay. About a five-minute walk down West 45th Street to the east, you'll find the Lyceum Theater at 149 West 45th Street. The Lyceum was a remarkable facility and has been so since it first opened in 1903. It's one of the three oldest surviving Broadway venues, and it was the first theater to be granted landmark status in 1974. It's one of the few theaters in New York to still be operating under its original name after more than a century. While they did not build it, it is one of the many venues owned by the Schubert organization today. The legendary dancer and choreographer Bob Foss. Fossey. thank you. <laughs> you get a person to ask. Bob Fossey may haunt the Lyceum, if actors and crew are to be believed. According to Playbill, Fossey was also well-known and well-regarded director, leaving an outsized mark on the already pretty outsized world of Broadway theater. People who claim to have experienced something supernatural at the Lyceum report hearing odd noises from the catwalk, the smell of cigarettes, and a weird, almost unexplainable presence in the seats. The smoking is especially noteworthy as it is now banned entirely in Broadway theaters and other indoor spaces in the city. Fossey, however, was rarely seen without a cigarette while he was still on this side of existence. While he was alive, Fossey also told actor... uh, old actor Roger Reeves, that he enjoyed getting a view of the theater from the balcony where he could overlook the entire space in all its glory. Now, what could be keeping Fossey at the Lyceum? It might be some lingering personal connection. In 2015, the theater hosted The Visit, a show starring another Broadway great, Cheetah Rivera. Fossey was close to Rivera as well as co-stars Roger Reeves and Riviera's understudy Donna McKinchy. I think I got that right. Cool. Some speculate that their presence may have called Fossey back for yet another show at the Lyceum. Fossey could easily be considered a man with unfinished business. He died of a sudden heart attack in September of 1987 at the age of 60 and had been working theatrical productions right up until his death. Perhaps he wanted at least one more curtain call with some of his oldest colleagues. Oldest and coldest colleagues, for that matter. But from the Lyceum, we're going to go down another right around the corner to uh, the Palace Theater at 1564 Broadway. Yes, this one is actually right on I did Broadway. that one. Have you now? Yeah. What did you see there? I remember something there. It was a rehearsal. I remember that. Somehow we, we would talk our way into rehearsal. Lucky you. I know. I, I don't know how we did it. <laughs> <laughs> Although I actually tend to do that somehow. 
say, excuse me, average some 80 something in first. Folklore says that the most effective way to exercise a ghost is to burn the bones of the deceased and to perhaps pinch his cremation in 1910, put the bit on his uh, future appearance. The city ran up the lyrics until uh, May of 1910 and then transferred to the Hackett Theater across 42nd Street until June when it saw its final curtain call, but it would never be forgotten thanks to its author's Somehow we got onto uh, we might might get wrecked into a D and D game with uh, Patrick and Alex. Oh boy! Oh boy! By the way, all my characters tend to destroy the last letter of the game. Just warning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Join us. That is why they call those questing a party. <laughs> and thank you, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Okay. People are enjoying this. So uh, yeah. Moving on from the lyric, huh? Yes. Ah, so. We totally run a haunt of Richmond D&D adventure. <laughs> <laughs> you might be surprised. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> I love that. Amy Breeze. Oh, yes. I do. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Time to keep her here. <laughs> are we, oh, we are running long. How are we running long? This is one of our shortest scripts in a while. Just in the northwest of the Lyric Theater, we have, um, oh, well, it's our last stop of the evening. So, the Martin Beck Theater at 302 West 45th Street was Broadway's furthest west house, located west of the 8th, uh, west of the 8th Avenue. It was built in 1924 as a vaudeville house by promoter Martin Beck. Beck lived until 1940, and in 1965, Beck's estate sold the theater to Jujuke Jansen. Jansen Theaters, the third and smallest of the Broadway theater owners. So, yeah, all of these theaters, they're kind of owned by conglomerates. So, there's only a few actual owners in all of Broadway. Have you seen the property taxes in here? Complete sidetrack. Anyway, <laughs> now, on September 25th of 2002, Rocco Lansman, president of Jamanson announced that on June 21st of 2003, the Beck, uh, Martin Beck would be renamed for Al Hirschfeld, the caricaturist beloved for his 76 years of chronicling Broadway performances and performers in recognition of his 100th birthday. Hirschfeld knew of the plan, but unfortunately he did not live to see the honor bestowed. The man known as the Lion King, not Lion, the Line King died of natural causes on January 20th, 2003, five months shy of his centennial birthday. The cast and crew of the revival of Wonderful Town, the musicalization of Joseph Fields and Jerome Chodorov's My Sister Eileen, which had only opened at the Hirschfield on November 23rd, 2003, again five months after it attained its new name, suffered a rash of lost props and things being mysteriously moved and removed from dressing rooms. This seemed to be an unhappy ghost, and the blame was laid at the feet of the long-deceased Martin Beck, who just wasn't willing to accept that his name had been stripped of the theater that he built. It was a really short one. Really, really short one. Uh, 
much celebration, and we will be all hopped up on stimulants to keep us keep ourselves moving through the month. Yeah, lots lots to talk about, lots to uh, keep us busy. Um, but yeah, two weeks, hundred waterways. Yep. Many many announcements either right around that time, a couple weeks from now. Uh, but yeah, stay tuned. We will be here, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, we'll only be doing one storytelling session in October. Thank you, Patrick. October, my favorite month. That's our link to our website. Thank you. Um, But yeah. Oh, I suppose there is one other thing. Um, It's a little bit of a a sidebar. We're not going to get into the exact date. But, Glenn, this is a special note specifically for you. We're coming. We are coming. We have reservations to stay in Camp at Point Lookout next month. So we will be coming up. We will make sure to drop you a uh, a side a side note to um, to make sure that we can get up there and actually meet you while we're there since you're basically going to be within walking distance. Uh, but yeah, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. We'll talk to you about that shortly. And uh, yes, yes. So. finally going camping. How long it's been? It's been several years since we've been able to go camping, so we are looking forward to it. Yes. But uh, it's going to be part of our September break. Tours will be running through September. Just oh, on Fridays. And I are taking some yep. Just on Fridays and Saturdays though, our guides, as wonderful as they are, will be kind of running the show for, you know, at least probably half the month while we uh, take a little R and R and rest up for uh, rest up for October. So anyways, yeah, Glenn will be touching uh, touching base with you again in the near future. It's not exactly uh, gonna be tomorrow or anything like that. We got got a few weeks, so we'll touch base with you about that soon. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll catch you all in two weeks, and we'll yep. talk about those coming waterways. Yep. So, all right. With that, we will bid you all a good night, and uh, go ahead and go watch a musical or something. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one, everybody. Bye.